Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're going to be talking about a subject that is is in the news and is certainly something that many people in our audience are facing, and that is how to survive the first six months home with a baby that's been exposed prenatally to opiates. Uh, Fascinating topic, important topic. I think you're going to enjoy it. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. We also recommend night feedings or sleep feedings, whereas you don't fully wake the infant when it, you know they're about to wake up for a bottle. You go ahead and give it to them while they're still asleep and try not to wake them so that you can not get them fully aroused. This show is brought to you by Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm your host and the director of Creating a Family. You can find out all about us and our resources online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by Jockey Being Fa- Excuse me, Jockey Being Family Foundation. They believe that every child deserves to grow up with a loving family in a forever home. You can find out more about their mission at their website. I should add, it's a new website, jockeybeingfamily.com. You can also support their efforts by attending their gala, the Jockey Being Family Gala and Golf Classic. It's going to be May 20th and 21st at the Grand Geneva, Geneva Resort and Spa near Kenosha, Wisconsin. It's going, some of us are going, it's going to be so much fun, can't wait. Today we're going to be talking about prenatal exposure, specifically what to expect at the hospital and the first six months home. Um, this is a, a topic that affects fostering families and adopting families. Our guests to talk about this topic are Dr. Yvette Horton. She is an assistant professor and director of child clinical services at the UNC Horizons program in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She specializes in working with children exposed to prenatal substance use and infant mental health. We also have Dr. Danielle, not Dr., Danielle Goodman. She is an, I was just giving you, Danielle, I'm giving you a doctoral degree. Let's call this a doctoral degree. I know. It's an easy way to get one. (laughs) Well, you know, Danielle, you've been on the show a number of times, so I I think you should deserve an honorary uh, creating a family doctor. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All title, no pay. Anyway, Danielle Goodman, she is an adoption social worker with Adoptions from the Heart, and she works with families who have adopted children who have been exposed prenatally to, to opiates. So welcome both Dr. Horton as well as uh, Dr. Goodman, or who else? Otherwise, yeah. I'll call Danielle. <laughs> I, wish oh, I, had, this is, I wish I had known that <laughs> before I got mine, <laughs> that I could get it a little easier. Well, Dr. Horton, just come on this show enough of times, and apparently we'll just give you a... Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> All right. The topic today is, uh, for this course, for this subject, is uh, opiate exposure and how it affects children, infants in specific. How does it affect them um, at birth, uh, the first weeks after birth, and the, the first six months? Um, Dr. Horton, I want to uh, begin with some just general information because a lot of the people who are going to be listening to this interview are going to be people who are considering uh, whether to accept a foster placement or an adoption match with a child that has been exposed. So first, just really generally, what type of drugs are included under the category of opiates? What would we know of uh, if, if, uh, if we heard that a, a parent or a birth parent had uh, had used a drug, what would we think of as an opiate? Right. Well, there's a couple different ways that you can get an opiate. You can get it through misuse and addiction. In that case, you might be talking about some of the ones you've been reading about in the news, heroin, um, pain pills that you are misusing, that you aren't prescribed. There are some folks who are prescribed because of severe pain diagnoses, um, and are on a m- kind of managed dose of pain meds during the pregnancy. So those are, you might hear some folks talking about Suboxone or Methadone or things like that that are generally safe for pregnancy. And then there are people who are taking, um, as you point out, they, it's, they're under 
they're not illegal. They are illegal drugs they are taking, and that would mm-hmm. be that mm-hmm. includes some of the oxycotton, some of those. Mm-hmm. Are they mm-hmm. also? Yeah. Those are okay. the pain. Yeah, are there? Yeah, considered yeah. pain pills, but yes. Right. They can be mm-hmm. abused, but they're they're. It's possible, and I think more often we see that they that they're being abused at this uh, for yes. the families that yes. we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Okay. There's so, been a huge increase, as you stated yeah. at the beginning of the show, like a five-fold increase in the past 15, 20 years of having children born with exposure to opioids. Exactly. Uh, so just generally, I, um, I don't want to get into a lot of the details, but just generally, how do opiates uh, used during pregnancy affect the fetus? And I'm not a medical doctor, but generally you tend to see a lower birth weight in the baby. They are at higher risk for miscarriage, especially if they stop abruptly, which is why we have some of these medical management um, medicines that we use. They might have um, neonatal abstinence syndrome if they've been exposed to it. So obviously it's an important issue that we need to really study and understand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, how can you tell at birth if a baby has been exposed? Because oftentimes we don't know. Um, the uh, the parent, uh, the mom, is, is has not disclosed. So what would be, uh, and Dr. Horton, I'm going to direct this one to you as well, what would be some of the symptoms or the um, signs that you would look for in a newborn that would indicate that the child, uh, that the baby may have been exposed? Well, there's changes kind of in their central nervous system. They may have really high-pitched crying. They may be more irritable. Their reflexes that all newborns have may be more exaggerated. They can have tremors, which is just a light shaking of the arms and limbs. You also see increased autonomic nervous system um, symptoms, such as sweating and fever and sneezing. Um, They can often have gastrointestinal distress, too. They have trouble feeding, um, latching on, and very loose stools. That's common. Um, Those are the big ones that I can think of. Okay. Um, All would be uh, certainly worrisome. And and we hear, and you mentioned it it earlier, neonatal abstinence syndrome. What Mm -hmm. is that? And, 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 And how, and are those, is are those symptoms any different? But first of all, what is, uh, it's called NAS, neonatal abstinence syndrome. NAS is just a withdrawal due to some physical dependence of the, during the pregnancy to the fetus. So it's not an addiction, it's just a withdrawal. And it can come from other medications other than opioids, sometimes um, nicotine, Sometimes SSRIs, which are your antidepressants, um, can cause this kind of withdrawal. So it's not just opioids, but it is pretty common in opioids to have this withdrawal reaction. So the uh, NAS means that the child is withdrawing from the, the drug. So what what are the symptoms of withdrawal? Yeah, and that's very much what I just stated. So what I was okay. just talking about, like, um, what you see in a newborn who has been exposed, those are the symptoms. So we have, there are various rating scales that physicians use to monitor infants once we find out they've been exposed to opioids or we suspect that they're having some sort of dependence and we're keeping an eye on it, um, that are checklists for all these different symptoms I just described, like the irritability and the crying and the sneezing and the loose stools and those sort of things, and we they get a score, and once the scores get high, then we know that they are in full-on withdrawal and we need to do something to assist the infant. Danielle, in your experience working with uh, families, and in your case there are families who are adopting uh, children that have been exposed, are there uh, some drugs that, that cause worse symptoms that you've seen? And then, Dr. Horton, I'd like to get you to chime in on this as well. Um, You know, not necessarily. Um, And what I uh, tell families that we're working with is sometimes, um, you know, you would ask the question about uh, 
like timing in in pregnancy um, before I think we got on the air and sometimes like it really it a lot of it depends on how the mom herself is metabolizing that drug whatever drug it is that she's taking and then in turn how the baby metabolizes it once the baby's here on whether or not they will withdraw or not so you know amphetamines barbiturates are also a couple drugs that can cause withdrawal symptoms um you know we are just seeing such an influx of opioids um so specifically heroin methadone suboxone or subitex um you know as well as those prescription drugs percocet oxycodone um and so those all pretty much have very similar symptoms that you're going to see with these babies and at the hospital that we generally work at, at our agency, um, you know, if a mom comes in who hasn't maybe gotten some prenatal care, the hospital is already going to be on the ready to start looking at those babies and start seeing whether or not they are scoring. So they're going to be checking them out a little bit more frequently to kind of see if there is any signs of loose stools, sneezing, you know, tight muscle tone, all of those kind of things, just to double check because they don't want to then discharge a baby um, who then might go home and start withdrawing um, at a later point. But generally, I mean, it can be any and all of those drugs could cause some of those symptoms, and we see them all. So, yeah, uh, yeah. go ahead, Dr. Horton. <clears throat> yeah, that's a, that's a really good point because it's important to understand that some things exacerbate um, a baby's withdrawal. One of the things that we see here is nicotine. So anytime a mom is smoking and taking illicit substances, the risk for um, having full-on neonatal abstinence syndrome is higher. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that we downplay is the impact of smoking during pregnancy. But, in fact, you know, from a um, – it, uh, it is a drug, and it does impact uh, fetuses and babies. So that's, a, that's fascinating. I wasn't aware – um, are the symptoms, is it possible for a child to have been exposed prenatally to opiates but not to, ex- not to show the symptoms of neonatal abstinence syndrome but to have still been exposed? Dr. Horton? Absolutely. It very much depends on how much opioid the baby was exposed to, whether or not there was nicotine, whether or not there were other substances like uh, other illegal substances um, involved. And we have had moms here who are on very low doses of Suboxone and didn't smoke and their babies did not have full-on neonatal abstinence syndrome. I also mm-hmm. think, and I hope we're going to talk about, which is my specialty, is how what we can do once the baby's born, even if they have been exposed, to minimize having mm-hmm. a withdrawal in a baby. <coughs> yeah, we are absolutely going to be talking about that. In fact, we're going to really mm-hmm. kind of focus on that. In fact, that's a good lead-in into um, <laughs> let's talk. So, so thank you, actually. Uh, let's <laughs> talk about, uh, first of all, I just want to talk about the medical treatment. If your baby is born um, dependent upon the substance, any of the substances, the opiates that their uh, mother has taken, what, Dr. Horton, are the typical treatments that you're going to see at, the, at a hospital uh, for a child who is it, who is giving the, showing the symptoms of dependency, NAS. That is a great question, and I'm afraid it's not a uniform answer, because it varies on the hospital and different practices um, mm-hmm. across the nation. We're trying to get better at that, and there's a lot of research going on to figure out what is best. At our hospital at UNC, we have found what is best is having the mother. Um, go to their own room with the infant and be monitored in their own room together with breastfeeding if possible. And they are, again, scored on the Finnegan or one of the other scales that we use. And at UNC, we use morphine, very tiny, tiny, tiny doses of morphine to help that we slowly titrate down till the baby is not having symptoms. 
Gotcha. And and keep in mind that different hospitals do approach this differently. It is exactly. it, it does seem like that there should be some best standard practices now. Just we're all facing this. Every state in the union mm-hmm. is so. It does mm-hmm. feel like, but I think there's progress um, being made uh, in in that uh, direction. All right, absolutely. Danielle, Danielle, what can parents expect at the hospital when a baby is born dependent or was exposed prenatally? And, and in specific, um, what I'm asking is is what would foster parents or adoptive parents um, be expecting? What would the hospital experience uh, typically be like? Um, so they are generally um, expected to look at, um, they're probably going to be there um, being monitored. The babies are going to be monitored for at least five days. Um, that seems to be um, a fairly common general practice um, because although some babies are going to start showing symptoms of withdrawal between 24 and 72 hours, some babies don't start showing um, signs of withdrawal until around closer to five days. Um, so we always prepare all of our adoptive families that we're working for with um, that they're going to need to be in the hospital for a little bit of time, about a week or so. Um, but then when they're in there, you know, clearly, you know, these babies are getting monitored and watched. Um, you know, I think that it has um, kind of gone to a, a protocol at at least the hospital that we're working with um, to do the tinctures of uh morphine or I don't know if that's how you call it, but the morphine um, to kind of uh, help with the baby's withdrawal. Um, And years ago when we first um, were, you know, seeing a little bit more of babies withdrawing, um, some of these hospitals were allowing families to go home um, with their babies. Um, But we now preface this with any of our adoptive families that you're going to be looking at staying in that hospital. The baby is going to be in the hospital being managed medically. Um, until the baby's withdrawal is completely subsided. Um, And so that could mean, depending on the baby, it could be a week or it could be six weeks. Um, I'd say on average what we generally see is about between two and four weeks of a time, Um, and that's just based on, you know, they have to get the baby stable on that medication first, um, you know, and then they start weaning the baby off of off of that morphine medication. Um, so we definitely are prefacing the fact that um, their initial time period um, is going to be a lot of hospital stay, um, you know, for possibly a month or maybe even a little longer. Dr. Horton, are you seeing uh, babies uh, in your practice um, uh, being kept for the average of, of two to four weeks, are, um, uh, depending, of course, on uh, on the, how stable the baby is and how quickly they can become weaned off of the morphine? What are you seeing, length of stay? Yeah, and that does vary widely, but I don't know how much your listeners know about our program, but we're a residential substance abuse treatment program, and so Mm -hmm. we take moms with substance use disorders and give them high-quality intensive prenatal care, a place to stay, and treatment for their addiction. And our outcomes are better than most um, in that we have babies less babies with low birth weight. We have shorter stays generally um, than the six weeks. We average, I would say, was about five days to 14, so two weeks max. And um, I think a lot of hospitals are still using the NICU to care for these infants, and that sometimes can up the stay because... It's kind of overstimulating in there, and we're finding that the rooming-in protocol that I described earlier really helps decrease the amount of morphine needed and the length of stay. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to to bring that up because I know that that is um, – um, I'm not sure it's controversial. I just don't know that many hospitals do it. Um, and um, so uh, the – and in your case, and, and I think we can rest assured that uh, that most of the families who will be listening uh, probably do not have the the birth mothers do, have not had access to the high quality program mm-hmm. that you're talking about. So I think that we can assume that that probably isn't um, an option for for them, unfortunately. Um, Danielle. Um, 
Are you seeing a movement in the hospitals that you work with to allow rooming in, and and is it being allowed with the uh, adoptive family and or foster family? Um, Yes. So, um, you know, a lot of our hospitals are actually going to almost, um, you know, taking a section of different areas of the hospital um, and having what is classified as like an NAS wing. Um, So multiple hospitals that we're working with actually have a separate section so that adoptive and foster families can be in there rooming with the baby because a lot of times what... um, we have found is, you know, if a family is there and is consistently there and is there um, doing skin to skin, holding the baby, um, you know, tightly, you know, tightly like up to their chest and holding them and comforting them, they actually do much better. Um, so their scores end up tend, you know, tend to be a little bit on the lower side. And then again, you know, it might not be as high of a dosage of medication if they end up needing that or they may be able to go home a little quicker. Um, and so that's something that we definitely promote in a lot of our hospitals are promoting um, adoptive families coming and, and rooming with the babies so that that way they can get that care. Because God love our nurses and doctors. They they do a wonderful job, but they have so many other patients um, to take care of. They don't have the time allowable to them to to care for each individual NAS baby. So having the family members there and caring for these children um, does make a world of difference. Danielle, what could an adoptive or even a foster parent, if they know that they are going to be, and this is particularly true in the adoptive situation and and can be true um, in the fostering situation, where they are anticipating the birth of a child who may have NAS but probably has had prenatal exposure, is there something that they could do ahead of time to work with the hospital um, uh, to make certain that they would be allowed to uh, have a room at the hospital, room in if the hospital will allow it, uh, or if not, uh, what they can do in the NICU um, to uh, try to replicate some of the benefits. Um, because oftentimes adoptive parents will know in advance and could do be mm-hmm. proactive. If So what what are some steps that they can take to be proactive? I mean, I think definitely when an adoptive or foster family is working with an agency, that's kind of our step um, in the process is to kind of connect with that hospital, see what their policies and procedures are um, with respect to are they going to allow that family to be in there um, to have maybe a separate room. Um, And I do find that, you know, thankfully we do work with a lot of adoption-friendly hospitals who um, really do look at it um, as a huge positive if a family is going to be able to be in there caring for that baby a little bit more. Um, So we do find that um, they will, as long as space allows, hopefully try to find um, those parents with that baby a separate room so that they can provide most, if not all, of the care for those babies. But I don't necessarily think anything other than us as an agency um, reaching out, um, you know, because sometimes some of these hospitals, like, you know, the doctor said you, there there's still a lot of NICUs. There's still um, hospitals mm-hmm. in in different areas across the country who don't have that allowability um, for a one-on-one room. I just say the most important thing for an adoptive or foster family is just kind of to know that if you're open to that exposure, know that um, it's not a quick and easy fix. It you know you're going to really want to prepare yourself, prepare your work, prepare your home life that you're going to want to be in that hospital caring for that baby as much as possible. Um, If the baby's in the NICU and you might not be able to spend the night there, but, like, try to be there as much as possible because we we have just seen, I don't know if there's necessarily studies that have proven this yet, but just in our experience, um, those babies who have somebody there caring for them almost around the clock do way better, you know, than um, so just kind of prepping themselves for knowing that their home life is going to be a little disrupted for you know, possibly a month of having to be in a separate area, in a in maybe a different state, in a hospital, you know, um, caring for this baby is really important for them to realize beforehand. Yeah, I'm really glad you talked about the uh, preparing your, go in expecting the, um, expecting the worst, and my grandmothers expect the worst, hope for the best, and settle for anything in between. That's um, right. <laughs> yeah, so you can... Uh, 
uh, and, and to anticipate that in advance and get your life structured because that is one of the advantages to adoption is that you do have, um, you do have time in advance to, to be planning for this. You are listening to an interview with Creating a Family. We primarily keep in touch with our community through our weekly e-newsletter. Uh, we would love for you to sign up. We have an adoption fostering one, and it comes out weekly. It, is got, it has resources that uh, I think you will find very valuable. You can sign up. It's free. You can sign up on any page of our website, creatingafamily.org. It's on the top right of the, of the website. Dr. Horton, we uh, received a question from Bethany, uh, and her question was, uh, can the seizures caused by the drugs in pregnancy cause brain damage? You did not mention, um, and uh, but uh, are, or maybe I didn't, uh, I didn't capture it. And um, are seizures a uh, uh, side effect of prenatal exposure, or can they be? They more than likely can be if they're you don't catch. Um, Neo, neonatal abstinence syndrome quickly, but I have not heard of that, and I, I haven't had any infants in my clinical work that have had that happen. Um, so the so treatment not, that we use, which is the, the, the titrate of morphine that's being titrated down, is to prevent symptoms such as that, the more severe symptoms? Is that, am I understanding you correctly? Yes, yes. Okay. And that's one of the reasons we you know, it's in, in substance use treatment with pregnant women that we use um, a more controlled opioid during pregnancy because if you do have a substance use disorder and you stopped abruptly, you are high, higher risk for miscarriage, and I did say that. So we slowly put them on a more controlled uh, medication. There are varieties of those kind of medications. We use Suboxone here. And that really keeps the baby more steady and, and ha again, is part of our good outcomes in terms of increasing birth weight, lower length of stay in the hospital, and things like that. I wanted well, to add, if it's okay, to what Danielle please. said, because she said it great. Yeah. Uh, there, are, there is research showing that rooming in, regardless if it's the mother or the foster mother or, you know, anybody that can in, be in there and room in and be and hold that baby does decrease the need for medication for the infant, the, the length of the medication and the length of the stay in the hospital. I have read that too. That, and, uh, and, and the length of stay is, is, uh, is what they specifically say as well as the, um, the length of time and the, and the, the amount of, of the medication that the, that mm -hmm, the baby mm -hmm, will need. Exactly. Which is you know, excellent for um, for children and for parents and, quite frankly, for hospitals as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So, Danielle, we've talked about that at this point we've had um, the baby has been in the hospital and uh, the parents will uh, uh, may or may not be allowed to room in. That is, uh, as we've discussed, something that, if possible, uh, has uh, good outcomes and, and preferred outcomes. So that is something. Uh, are there other specific things uh, that you mentioned that are important? That very you mentioned skin to skin. Um, so tell us about that. And then and and for how long do you, is it recommended that you uh, emphasize skin to skin contact with uh, with the baby? I mean, I think definitely that we have seen a trend um, more recently um, from hospitals wanting that regardless of if the baby is uh, born um, with possible addiction um, issues or not. Um, I can tell you that we're also one of the states that we're licensed in is Connecticut, um, and they have their hospitals there all, I think it's Yale that's up in that area, have um, done some studies about how important skin-to-skin -skin is. So... You know, we preface that with our families, adoptive families, and we're a non-discriminatory agency. So um, even if there happen to be a male couple, um, be prepared to take your shirt off and um, don't some skin to skin. Um, and mm -hmm. um, at that particular hospital, um, once it could be done as much as possible. Um, so literally, you know, um, caring for the baby and having the baby on your chest 
um, and that warmth is really, really important and vital um, to just help them um, feel comforted. So um, I'd say that, you know, I don't know if there's a 100%, you know, answer to that, but I think that the more that families can be willing to do the skin-to-skin, the better. Okay, excellent. So in the hospital, uh, tips for parents who are um, uh, who are uh, going to be parenting a uh, a baby who's been prenatally exposed. So rooming in when possible, skin to skin contact when possible. Uh, Dr. Horton, other things that right now I'm focusing on the hospital time. Uh, mm-hmm. Other things that you would recommend for parents who will be uh, bringing home, hopefully in a short a period a shorter period of time, a baby who is prenatally exposed to opiates. Right, and kangaroo care, which is, you know, another way to say skin-to-skin has been shown to really help these babies. It really helps all babies, right? Mm -hmm. So all newborns really benefit Mm -hmm. from that. But because these babies' central nervous systems are kind of stressed, they benefit from it even more. So Mm -hmm. the skin-to-skin, decreasing the environmental stimuli, turning down the lights, Mm -hmm. keeping it low, almost like... They're still in the womb, so they can have time. Another reason why that kangaroo therapy works so well is you can, they can hear your heart, which is exactly what they did inside the womb, and so it, it's very calming. So keeping the lights down low, doing small on-demand feedings are very helpful. Um, using pacifiers, sometimes people don't want to use pacifiers because they're worried about consequences for later, but these babies, because they're a little bit stressed, have a very strong sucking reflex, and so using mm-hmm. a pacifier does help soothe them. Um, swaddling is really important, too. They really, again, swaddling sort of, when you wrap up the baby and kind of calm the legs and the arms really helps soothe the baby, much like, again, you're recreating that environment in the womb, those are all great things for newborns those those first few weeks. Excellent. And, and what about the use of, of uh, rocking? And if you're not able to be, uh, when you're not doing kangaroo care or the skin-to-skin or, or carrying the baby on you, um, what about, uh, we, we often will see them in a, a rocking, in uh, some type of rocker. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, is that... Is that helpful, or is it from a soothing standpoint, or is it done just, or is it being done? Maybe I should ask. Um, we definitely see that often um, mm-hmm. in our hospitals. A lot of times they actually have donated swings or um, the gliders, as they're called, um, and it does um, seem to um, generally calm down the babies. Probably again because it it still is kind of replicating the womb with the. You know, if a woman is walking and she's pregnant, the baby inside is kind of rocking back and forth. So I think it does does help. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Excellent. Very good. All right. Now, the baby, how is the decision made, Dr. Horton, for when the baby is ready to go home? At this point, everybody is ready and anxious to get out of the hospital. They've been there anywhere from two to four to six weeks, you know, depending on any number of conditions, uh, factors rather, and everyone's anxious to get home. So what are the deciding factors? Uh, let's assume in this case that the, one of them is not uh, whether the, the home environment is going to be stable because I realize that uh, often these children are going home with birth families, and that, so there are some different issues. In this case, let's make the assumption that the child will be going home with a, uh, an adoptive family or a foster family. So, Dr. Horton, what, what are the factors that uh, the hospital is looking at for making a decision on whether the baby can go home? Right. So I don't know the exact protocol, but my understanding is that, you know, and it's going to, of course, vary by hospital, but once the child has been titrated off the morphine or whatever medication they're using at that hospital, and they've seen that that the child is scoring on these assessments below clinical range, they'll keep an eye on it. And once they see that, then the baby can go home generally. Okay, so once the... Um, and, and Danielle, are you seeing anything different in your experience um, off of morphine and, uh, and and scoring well? 
Right. So normally they are generally looking at they have to be off the morphine, um, and they generally give them a 24 to 48-hour period where they're still um, checking their scores. And if they are low enough, then at that point, you know, they do um, prepare them for discharge. So I see pretty much the same thing. Okay. So now the, the, the child and the family, the baby and the family are going home. Danielle, what do you tell people to expect, let's say, the first couple of weeks that the baby has been brought home? I mean, generally what doctors will still say is that there may still be, you know, uh, their NAS scores may not be still zero. So you may still see some... Um, tight muscle tone, um, some crying. Um, They may still go home and have uh, loose step stools. Um, So it's still things that um, most of our families, we tell them to get familiar with that score check sheet so that that way they kind of know what to be on the lookout for. Um, It definitely does subside um, within the first, you know, few weeks to a month of them being home generally. Um, But there are still some things that, you know, they want to get good quality um, diaper rash cream um, and make sure that they're still, you know, having a safe and calm environment, um, you know, when they bring that baby home. Um, But generally, um, what we see is those babies, you know, even within the first couple of weeks of coming home, um, do really well, and they don't have nearly to the extent of um, any of the issues or side effects associated with the withdrawal um, once they've come home because they've already um, gone through a lot of that. Um, a lot of times our hospitals will call in a referral to, like, a child watch program just to have somebody come out there um, and do an assessment on the babies, especially for that muscle tone, um, make sure that, you know, the parents are exercising those muscles um, and so for the reflexes and that sort of thing, um, you know, because the muscles were so tight for a while, um, and so that has, you know, shown to be a good a good step as well. And does that usually have to be something that the parent can't call on their own, that it, they need to ask their doctor to um, uh, to arrange uh, admittance to one of the child watch programs, Danielle? Um, I mean, generally, a lot of times the hospital is doing that referral initially, but I don't think, um, and I'm not 100% sure, but I don't think, I think that the parents, um, if they go home from a particular hospital that might not have made the referral and that family feels like that might be a good step um, for their child, they can make that, that referral call as well. Well, sometimes in an adoptive situation, the child is in a different even state or certainly not in the same uh, lo- location. Now, fostering, so that that usually isn't the case. So, um, so with fostering, it isn't. Um, let's go back and, and ask, uh, in fact, Danielle, I'll ask you this. Um, is it helpful to take some uh, um, uh, preemptive uh, 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 bottom care for uh, preventing diaper rash because we've got a situation where we know Oftentimes we've got loose stools. So what do you encourage families to do to take care of those little bottoms ahead of time before we develop a rash? Right. Sometimes those hospitals actually will do that if they know that the baby um, might even, you know, have had the exposure or might even start to um, be scoring um, pretty quickly. Um, A lot of times those hospitals are um, providing that diaper rash cream beforehand, and basically they're telling the families to make sure that they get it clean and and try to pat it dry um, and then put that cream on um, with every single diaper change, um, regardless mm-hmm. of if it was a bowel movement diaper change or not, um, just to kind of make sure that they're, you know, uh, precautionarily um, keeping that, that bottom, you know, healthy. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. Before, because we know that the baby is likely going to be at higher risk. And once a rash develops, um, then you've got significant discomfort and you're fighting to, to get it cleared up. So sometimes Absolutely. treating it in advance you know, it will prevent that from happening. Dr. Horton, what challenges, uh, additional challenges, do you see parents face uh, when they uh, are first home with a baby with NAS or prenatal exposure? Um, can I add something before I do that? One of the things Please. we didn't mention, and I know that sure. this is really important because there are a lot of studies showing that breastfeeding is associated with reduced severity of withdrawal. And so um, I know that not all the families listening have that option, 
But if they do have that option, that really helps the baby during those first few days. Um, so I just wanted to add that. But what we also see is exactly like Danielle said, depending on whatever assessment they're using, you usually will go home and there still will be some excessive irritability, increased crying. Sometimes they have slightly disorganized sucks or their feeding is difficult at times. And so those are some of the things you might see that we in our program go in and assist the mother with to kind of show them and figure out what works best for this baby. Um, another thing that Danny, okay, go, go ahead. No, no, the other go thing ahead. that Danielle mentioned um, is infant massage and if the baby will tolerate it because Danielle was talking about those muscles that are stiff from the tremors and, t and stretching out infant massage has been really helpful for a lot of our babies yeah both from the soothing standpoint as well as the, the muscle relaxation standpoint mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, both of which uh, are important um, and, and I was glad you raised that about breastfeeding it's in the environment we're talking about, it's uh, it's more complicated because at this point it, it, it's not up to the adoptive mom to necessarily um, be able to um, you know to make that decision. Um, but I, right. what I hear you saying is that if the birth mom is uh, is willing, and not all are, but if uh, she is willing. Uh, sometimes that uh, it takes some uh, preemptive work from uh, with adoptive parents, as well as foster parents, to to be pro, to be encouraging of it as opposed to discouraging. So I exactly. think it's it's still a valid uh, valid thing to raise. I wanted to come back to the difficulty in feeding because I think that is something that we certainly hear from parents. Um, Let's talk about you. You mentioned a disorganized sucking. I think that that's pretty self-explanatory. Mm -hmm. But uh, can you explain a little more uh, about what that is, and then specifically what parents can do? And in this case, most of them will likely be bottle feeding. Uh, right. So, uh, so what parents can do to try to help with the feeding potential feeding issues? Right, so it's going to require some patience, at least for a little while. I agree with what Danielle said. Largely, once they're home, things get back to normal really quickly. But you may have a child who, you know, is, doesn't have a good grasp on the bottle and is leaking from the side, and so you have to really look at their latch onto the bottle. They may fatigue easily, so they, they can suck for a while, but they stop and they're Sometimes the parents may be wondering, oh, they're only eating this amount, but they're eating more frequently just because they kind of are getting used to that sucking and and feeling better about eating <laughs> now that they're home from the hospital. So usually a little bit of work, we go in and we look at the latch onto the bottle. We watch them eat. We make sure that their lips are correctly positioned on the bottle and as they would be on a breast either way. And kind of help the mom know what those cues are to help their baby get through a feeding. Is there any particular bottle that you recommend that is easier for a baby to latch onto, one that is not latching on well? There's, I mean, we use, um, I think it's Dr. Brown's um, frequently because it's supposed to reduce the gas that a lot of babies get, and that seemed to have been helpful for a lot of our moms. But they have so many new ones out, I can't even keep up. Some, so <laughs> some of our babies who are doing some breastfeeding and then some bottle feeding prefer the ones that are shaped more like a breast. So it, you may have to try several different types to find what works best for your baby. Yeah, so the the I think bottom line is if you are noticing um milk coming out from the when the baby is sucking or the the baby fatiguing quickly, not getting mm -hmm. a, a full uh, start experimenting with different nipples in particular mm -hmm. uh and uh buy a couple and try them and see see which one is easier. Um and uh it's good Sometimes answer. it's not just the bottles themselves, it's the nipples because right, the nipple depending the if the baby was a preemie, you know, they have nipples these days are generally labeled, 
you know, whether they're a premature nipple versus like a one, which is a newborn full-term infant. And so looking and trying out different sizes of the nipple holes to that best fit for that baby at that time. So it's kind of a moving target <laughs> a lot of times. But um, usually within a few days, we can kind of figure out what works best for that baby at that moment. And, of course, as all babies grow and change, you might have to change that in a little while. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, Dr. Horton, you mentioned that the uh, symptoms, uh, the uh, things get to normal relatively quickly. Let's define that. I mean, what do you mean by uh, relatively quickly? How long should we expect to see the symptoms that we discussed of exposure uh, in a baby? Um, if you can just give us a range that's fairly typical. Typically, they're mostly resolved by three months is what we see. Um, you might see an occasional tremor or a sneeze, but all newborn sneeze. So, um, you know, it gets hard to figure out, well, is this from being exposed to it or is this sort of a normal thing that all babies do? So usually mm-hmm. by three months. Sometimes I find that when they go home that first month or two, they need similar to what they're getting in the hospital. They need the skin-to-skin. They need swaddling. They need a calm, quiet environment with the lights low um, and more frequent feedings during those first couple of months. But if you walked into our our child care and looked at our image, you would not be able to tell, for the most part, which baby had which exposure because usually a, a lot of that is resolved. Danielle, uh, the most important issue all new parents face is sleep uh, and or lack thereof. Um, what type of sleep issues are um, common with babies who have been exposed prenatally? Oops, I think we may have, hang on just a second. I think we, hang on just a second. Danielle, I apologize. Let me try this again. If you could talk to us about uh, sleep issues that uh, are fairly common with um, uh, uh, babies who were exposed prenatally to opiates. Um, I think that um, what we generally see, and this might not just be a prenatally exposed baby, but, you know, initially most newborns have their days and their nights confused, which hence, um, you know, causes that lack of sleep um, for new parents, um, regardless of if it's a biological parent or an adoptive or foster parent. And I think that, you know, for as much as families can do, they need to have a plan in place and, um you know, if if there is a two-parent household, you know, I think what we see works really, really well is them sharing the load. So one parent, you know, takes part of the night and the other parent takes the other half of the night just so that one can get a good chunk of sleep at a time. It doesn't work so well if somebody happens to be a single parent. Um, I think, you know, you just have to preface the fact that most babies, again, whether or not they're um, showing any signs of withdrawal or not, um, you know, sometimes have their days and their nights confused, so, you know, and they need to eat every two to three hours. So, you know, you're going to expect that you're not going to get a full eight hours of sleep any longer once you become a parent. Um, You need to kind of, you know, prep yourself for the lack of sleep. Um, But I do think that there can be a little bit more irritability. So unlike a, a regular newborn who might get that bottle, their belly is filled, they go right back to sleep. You know, a baby that has had some withdrawal, um, might be irritable, might need that skin-to-skin. They might need you to stay up longer with them in the interim. And we always tell our families that when the baby's sleeping, you try to get some rest because we realize that, you know, you still need to do laundry and vacuum and that sort of thing, but sleep is really important and you're not going to function if you're not sleeping. So even if it's during the day, um, you know, when when they go down um, for some sleep, you may want to go down for some sleep as well. And Dr. Horton, have, yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm shaking my head, Danielle, as if that, as if that would be helpful for you. The, uh, I've been doing this for over 10 years. You would think I would know. Um, the um, Dr. Horton, we certainly, and I don't know if this is anecdotal, but do you also, uh, we hear from people uh, that when they come home that that it's helpful to be prepared for uh, a longer period of of sleep issues uh, if the baby has uh, been prenatally exposed. Now, this could also just be because they've been in the hospital 
are, you know, could be for any number of reasons, are the increased irritability or the more frequent feedings. Do you also see that uh, there's a uh, a little longer uh, sleep disruption before the baby gets into a good pattern with babies who are prenatally exposed? Sometimes, yes. Not all the time, but sometimes, yes. It depends somewhat on the severity of the NAS. And we find that the swaddling and all the things you were doing in the hospital really help with that. The other couple of things that I want to add to what Danielle said is having the babies get some daylight during the day, not obviously. Oh, good one. Yeah, that's Daylight, one. like as in you're going to get sunburn, that's not healthy, but just being near a window during the day to help keep their nights from switching. We also recommend night feedings or sleep feedings, whereas you don't fully wake the infant when it, you know they're about to wake up for a bottle, you go ahead and give it to them while they're still asleep and try not to wake them so that you can not get them fully aroused. We really teach really to notice the signs of the different types of sleep in infants, the difference between active sleep and deep sleep. And we try and catch them when they're in that active phase, moving around a little bit but not quite awake, and give them a sleep feeding, a little bottle then, and that kind of helps keep them calm through the next sleep cycle. And hopefully you'll be able to get some sleep too. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I could see that that would be useful. Uh, because, And then also keeps the baby from getting in the habit of waking up to be fed. They're being fed, um, but they're, um, they're not uh, having to be uh, encouraged back to sleep since they never fully wake. That makes very good sense. Now, obviously, you can't do that all the time if the baby's had a diaper or something, right? But if you can, it does help keep them calm and keep them in a sleep cycle longer. Yeah, okay, excellent. The next question, we have a question, and and I'm going to direct this to you, uh, Danielle. Um, This is from Louisa. She said, we are fostering a baby that was born addicted to heroin. It is not clear whether he will become available for adoption or will be reunited. Will be reunited. His mom was in rehab but dropped out last week. I am really struggling with bad feelings towards her. Every time I see how this little boy is suffering, I get so angry. I know I am supposed to be working with her and helping her reunite. I also know that if we are able to adopt this baby, that I need not to hate her or be angry with her, but I am really struggling. How can I not blame her for what she did to this innocent baby? Uh, I think this is a feeling that uh, is a lot of adoptive and foster families uh, have. They see the baby suffering, and 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 it's hard not to feel uh, negatively towards uh, the birth mom, even if you believe that's not in the child's best interest to have these feelings. Uh, Danielle, can you give some um, advice to Louisa, who's struggling with this right now? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's just important to remember that, um, you know, the child that she's fostering's birth mom um, was in a circumstance, and addiction crosses all all races, all socioeconomic statuses. I mean, everybody. I mean, this epidemic is humongous now, and um, heroin specifically is hugely addictive. And, um, you know, I think sometimes for families who just want to be parents so bad, they forget that part that... Um, this woman who gave birth is in a completely different circumstance than they are in. So hopefully for this child, she will kind of, even if she still continues to have those feelings, um, not let them, you know, come forth and, you know, cause a negative reaction um, to the birth mom um, because some things, unfortunately, are out of their control. And, um, you know, it, it. I don't, I truly still don't believe that even, um when a woman gets pregnant, um, she may or may not have known that she was pregnant for a while. Um, I think that women try to do the best that they can do, um, you know, and they, you know, it sounds like she she was trying to better herself, but, you know, that pull for that addiction is really, really hard, um, you know, sometimes, and, you know, but there's still love, you know. She chose to continue on with her pregnancy, which she may or may not have had to do, um, and so she wanted to be able to give her child life, and, um, you know, and for that, I think that, you know, um, this foster family should at least um, be respectful of that piece of it, that here's this beautiful child that she's caring for, and even though he's had a rough start to life, um, you know, Hopefully, you know, whatever is meant to happen, you know, for his best interest will happen. Um, 
but remember that in adoption or in foster, we can't make those decisions for those men and women, that, that they're making them themselves. And sometimes it's really hard. That's why I think the epidemic is as huge as it is right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it's a crisis. Can I add yeah. something to that? Yes, please. I Tell think me. those feelings are really common. They're really common even mm-hmm. in the moms that we have here. They have enormous guilt. But yeah. one thing that is really helpful is to realize that addiction is a disease. And so instead of being mad at the mother, be mad at the disease. This is a horrible disease that mothers don't want to do this to their babies, but their addiction takes over their brain, literally. And, you know, it kind of helps to not frame it as a mother as the disease. Yeah, I, yeah, I like that. And I also um, take the intent out of it. So often our, our anger is focused on the mother did this to the child, which implies intent, when in fact I would almost guarantee that there is no mother who intentionally set out to harm her child, uh, which is just another way of saying it. It's the, focus your anger on the addiction, on the disease, um, mm-hmm. because it wasn't the intent to harm. Uh, and that leads into uh, a question that I wanted to direct to to you, Dr. Horton. And this is from, she asked me to call her Gamma. Um, she said, I am raising my one-year-old granddaughter who is born dependent on drugs that her daughter, no, that her mother, my daughter, took during pregnancy. My daughter is trying to get clean, but she is currently using. We hope to get her back into rehab soon. She is so filled with regret that I think it is interfering with her recovery. How can I help her? At first, she didn't even want to be around her daughter because of the guilt. As the daughter, C, the, the daughter, as the baby, as C has gotten older, it is doing. Uh, she is doing better. Uh, she is now coming around more, but she is still racked with guilt. So this is a, a woman who is raising her granddaughter, and she's also trying to help her daughter, uh, who is, as, as you mentioned, racked with guilt. Dr. Horton, can you give any advice to, um, to, this, to this woman? This is so common. This is absolutely so common. Exactly what you said before, no mother really wants to do harm to her baby, but when the disease takes over. And I think that that message that I just said is helpful for the mothers, too. They need to not blame themselves. They need to blame their disease and take the next right step, getting into their treatment programs, getting a sponsor, doing all the things that we know work for addiction. One other thing that's really important to know is with the women that we see here is I liked what Danielle said about their circumstances. Women who get into addiction often have been exposed to many different traumas, and their addiction started as a way to cope with those traumas and then got out of control. So getting treatment for the mom, including counseling, and the whole family can really help with that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's that research that talks about uh, uh, the the long-term impact of every single exposure to trauma someone has had, uh, and it's real, and it has a dramatic effect on us, and and trauma does, has a dramatic effect on us and our health. And uh, 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 traumas that uh, these moms have experienced has often led to um, their use of of drugs before and and then ultimately their addiction. all right, so for families that are now raising children who are have been uh, prenatally exposed to opiates, what services uh, are uh, typically available? Now, we can't speak, obviously our audience is, uh, our, our, the people who are listening to this interview are national, so we can't speak to specific programs in, in one or two locations. But what type of general services do parents need to be thinking about uh, contact and we already talked um, I believe uh, Danielle you raised the child watch programs so that's uh-huh. uh, available for zero to three uh, oftentimes what are some other programs um, uh, at different ages that uh, that parents need to become aware of uh, if in case they feel like their child would benefit Danielle <clears throat> 
Um, I mean, I think that they just need to be aware that, um, and again, we're not, we're talking more about immediate, but longer term, like if they no, need I'm to have any kind of services. Term. Yeah, longer yeah. term now, yeah. just so they can the, become aware the, of them now. Go ahead. Right, right. So, um, you know, if, if the child ends up having any kind of issues associated with like some, some slight learning disabilities, maybe getting some resources in place about some assistance with schoolwork or um, that sort of thing, because that could be um, something that we could look at um, long-term, um, that they may need a little bit more help reading or um, focus on, you know, uh, other, other school, schoolwork type of things. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, in adoption specifically, um, adoptees struggle a little bit, you know, with their story and with their situation, um, regardless of if their their birth parents chose adoption, um, you know, because of, you know, a drug history or not. Um, so looking for some resources for maybe some support groups um, for adoptees um, or adoption in general um, might be a positive thing for families to look into as well. Okay. Excellent. Dr. Horton, what generally what type of services uh, have you seen that are available? I think zero to three type of programs are available most places. Um, uh, anything yes. other than zero yes. to three, or, or what about from uh, full type of programs the child may that you may want to look for for early or early kindergarten or things like that? Right. Well, I do think all children. All children, regardless of what they're exposed to, should be monitored for their developmental milestones, including their social and emotional milestones, because um, a lot of things can happen to kids that can be um, impact them emotionally. So we definitely do weekly home visiting to monitor all of the milestones, including the social and emotional, really helping foster a strong attachment with the primary caregiver, whether that's a foster mother, a grandmother, or the or the biological mother, because that has also been shown to be really helpful longitudinally for children is to having that secure bond. And sometimes these babies, because they're more irritable and fussy, sometimes they are at risk for not having a healthy and secure bond with a primary caregiver. So we want to really ensure that. And so we do the weekly home visiting. Um, there are infant mental health programs in most states. They can be sometimes hard to find, but providers who specialize in working with um, children from birth to three really can be helpful in reducing the stress to the parent, reducing the stress to the infant, and helping form that secure bond. Excellent. And then as and then just to, as your child does age, contact your local school system and find out what mm -hmm. type of programs they have that your child may be eligible and there's a whole host of them some are you know f focused on the four to five some are uh, and you know a pre-kindergarten uh there's just a, a number of uh, of services that school systems may offer that your child may or may not qualify for but uh, but it doesn't hurt to go ahead and and, and learn about them and uh, ahead of time so that you can be you can access them without relatively quickly and find out what it takes to access them. Uh, so you could be laying the um, the groundwork uh, and if you need to be working with your pediatrician or whatever. Well, thank you so very much. Um, uh, I certainly uh, appreciate both Danielle Goodman as well as Dr. Yvette Horton uh, for talking with us today about this really important subject uh, and a subject that uh, is affecting more and more uh, more and more people, more and more families, especially uh, adoptive and foster families. I wanted to remind you that this show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not and would not happen without the generous support of our partners who believe in our mission of providing unbiased uh, information and uh, support to those who are struggling to create a family. Some of our great sponsors include Adoptions from the Heart. They have helped build over 6,000 families since 1985 through domestic infant adoption. They work with people all across the United States and are licensed in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Delaware, Virginia, and Connecticut. 
We also have Spence Chapin. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit organization in the New York City metro area that has been offering adoption services for more than 100 years. Their robust post-adoption support provides birth parents, adoptive parents, and adoptees a supportive community. And we thank them as well as all of our other uh, partners for their support. Now, I know that many of you will be interested in getting more information about the UNC Horizons program that Dr. Horton is affiliated with, as well as Adoptions from the Heart, which is where uh, Danielle Goodwin is affiliated. Uh, Information can be gotten on Dr. Horton and the Horizons program at their website, unchorizons.com. H O R I Z O N S uh, dot org, and you can get more information about Danielle and about adoptions from the heart at their website, and that is A F T H, which stands for Adoptions from the Heart dot org. A F T H dot org. Thank you so much for joining us. I will see you next week. Right now at the Home Depot, you'll save up to 35% off appliance special buys, like a GE Appliance's top-load washer and dryer pair with deep clean and deep rinse options, a reliable heavy-duty agitator, and four precise water levels, just $4.78 each. Wash, dry, save, repeat. Today is the day for doing with Spring Black Friday Savings now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only while supplies last. Yes, dry, extra, see store for details valid through April 17th. Your hands were made for greatness. Mighty hands for painting, paneling, and clicking the submit order button on homedepot.com to get that duvet. And these Egyptian cotton towels delivered right to your door. Do more with decor at the Home Depot. Save up to 30% on select bedding and bath. Now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Ballot on select items online only, free delivery on select items $45 or more. Enter promo code BEDBATH15 at purchase for an extra 15% off. Visit homedepot.com for more information.